0: Spent the past week filled with dread. The impending discomfort and guilt surrounding Watson's planned return on my birthday have plagued my every hour since the plan itself was first conceived. And today it is my birthday, which means I'm filled with foreboding rather than the mirth that is expected of me by society. I've tried my best to keep my composure, but I am afraid. This has been a difficult pursuit, and I have more often than not failed in my aim at doing so. I have found myself on edge and more distractible than is even typical for myself, which is really saying something. I despise making mistakes, and I have made too many of them this past week. In my deepest moments of frustration, I have found myself flying to blaming Stamford for my fateful meeting with the doctor. Without him, I would have remained a peaceful inhabitant of the University Library until further notice. I am ashamed to say that sometimes, I have even found myself wanting to blame Dr. Watson for my own difficulties, even though he has done nothing wrong in the least, and has become an unwitting piece in a puzzle designed to drive me to distraction and to madness. I am aware that this is a predicament all my own, and that it is neither Stanford nor Dr. Watson's fault, but rather a scrape of my very own design I now find myself in. It's been nearly impossible to focus on my work, and yet I have had to keep up the difficult facade of appearing to be working, or else arise the suspicion of the faculty, staff, and the students. This means I have had to repeat many mindless experiments that I have already completed, or pretend that the menial and repetitive actions I have found myself spending my time on have some sort of actual purpose. This in turn has been incredibly boring to me, even though I am completely emptied and devoid of the mental energies it would take to do anything that wasn't boring. All of this, the uncertainty. The boredom has led my mind back to the dark places it snaps back to in the absence of interesting distractions. My depression has come back full swing, and it has been difficult to deal with. I also haven't been sleeping well. Every sound I hear in the night jars me awake, even if it's just Mr. Sprinkles licking his own feet. In the day, even when I am trying to complete my mindless little tasks... The merest footstep in the hole outside the lab is enough to send me on edge, and I wait with bated breath, fearing perhaps it is Dr. Watson putting in his appearance days early to accost me about whether or not I shall be rooming with him, and it is not the question itself which causes such turmoil inside of me, but rather my necessary answer to the question, and the inexorable rejection inherent to it. My sense of foreboding has only increased as the dreaded day has drawn nearer. Last night, despite my escalating exhaustion, I was hardly able to sleep at all. By the time the first tendrils of sunlight peered in through the frosted windows, I knew sleep was a futile endeavor, and I fled to the lab as soon as possible, which is where I have remained ever since aware that each passing minute is one minute closer to the inescapability of the conversation I have been flinching from since its inception. Telling Dr. Watson I do not want to room with him is a time bomb, ticking ever closer to its inevitable, and surprise, explosion. I do not want to see the look on his face as I refuse his offer. I know it will hurt him greatly when I do, but it is for his own good. He does not know who I am or what I am like. I cannot, I, I will not drag him into a river which he has inadvertently entered without being aware of what lies beneath. The day has been a dreadful dance of anticipation with no relief, no conclusion, no closure. I shouldn't feel so nervous about this, and I loathe myself for feeling so much anxiety over such a simple task. But try as I might, I regretfully cannot change the nervousness that plagues me. I've rejected many people before, but never with the anxiety which has preceded this. The number of times I have heard footsteps in the hall, only to tense up, stealing myself for Dr. Watson's appearance, only for the footsteps to continue on their way down the hall without even approaching my door. I have found myself more frazzled by the hour, edging closer and closer to madness, half fervently attempting to stay awake, half desperately wishing to fall into the unconsciousness of sleep just to taste the smallest filament of relief. This cycle went on for hours. I tried making more synthetic mud, but this only reminded me of Dr. Watson, so I had to stop. Then I swept each modicum of dust from the floor with an old broom I stole from the cleaning cupboard. Even though I despise cleaning, just so I'd have something requiring little thought to do. When this was done, I got out a lot of beakers and filled them with different colours of water, and spent far too long pouring water from one beaker into another, just to feel some semblance of accomplishment. I hoped playing around with the beakers might inspire real scientific interest and rekindle my mind enough to feel even the smallest bit inspired again, but I was too worn out to feel anything but dread and emptiness and so pouring the water from beaker to beaker only made me feel worse. It was then that it happened. My silence was broken by a sudden knock at the door. I flinched, freezing up as my pulse jumped and adrenaline flashed through my bloodstream. Some great wave of emotion passed directly through me like a ghost, and I scrambled both to wrestle back my control over my composure and to appear as though I had been busily working on something prior to being interrupted, which only meant that I resumed pouring the coloured water from beaker to beaker. "'Come in,' I announced, annoyed that my voice conveyed less stability than I had intended. I did my best to put my most serious expression upon my face, sitting up a little straighter and fortifying myself with the unpleasantly necessary task of rejecting Dr. Watson's offer as soon as possible once he had entered the laboratory. I would tell him no, just as I had planned, just as I had imagined, a thousand times over in my head when I was unable to sleep— I would tell him no. Then the door opened, and I swiveled coolly around to face him. My chair, regretfully, was not of the swivel type itself, so this action meant attempting to turn my body in a confident, smooth fashion towards the door while seated in a stationary chair. I mostly succeeded in doing so, despite the fact that my trousers were sweaty and did not glide as easily across the chair as I would have liked. I've been thinking. I do much appreciate your offer, but... I looked at him with what I was certain was my most serious expression. That was when I realized it was not Dr. Watson who had entered. It was just some random student, one who looked positively terrified about having to enter the lab in the first place. I'm sure my swiveling and loud announcement hadn't helped his impression of me, nor had the stories about me the other students had undoubtedly told. I could tell he was a botany student by the dirt under his fingernails. "'What's your favorite plant?' I demanded, in an attempt to put him at ease. "'I do not think my question had this effect, though, "'as he looked even more embarrassed about and intimidated by interrupting me than he had previously, "'and blushed deeply while simultaneously looking increasingly horrified. "'It's okay. I was preparing for another experiment, but you aren't interrupting anything,' I said, "'hoping that this was what he wanted to hear.' "'He looked somewhat more reassured, so I assumed I'd been in this assumption.' His eyes scanned the room nervously, so I knew there was one specific thing he knew might be in here, but that he did not wish to see, so I added, there are no corpses in this room. Right now. Apparently, this comment had the opposite effect than I had intended, because he went back to looking horrified again, and I decided that he was a lost cause. I went back to pretending to gather up science supplies while he crept, mouse-like towards the rack of test tubes, as though if he made too loud a sound, a hidden cadaver might fall out of the cupboard or something. Part of me was relieved it was not Dr. Watson. My shoulders loosened for the first time in hours. Perhaps he'd forgotten about my birthday entirely, and I would not have to deal with an embarrassing celebration nor conversation. Maybe all my anxiety leading up to today had been for nothing. Maybe he'd already found another flatmate, and I'd be relieved of that burden as well. Maybe he wouldn't show up at all, and I'd be able to get my first peaceful night of sleep in days. My nerves were still on edge, and I trembled a bit as I went back to pouring the colourful water between the beakers. This was my own undoing, as when I set down one of the beakers, I accidentally knocked a pair of forceps onto the ground and they clattered loudly, startling the student who backed up fearfully against the wall and nearly dropped his test tubes. The forceps landed under the lab table, so I bent down and crawled underneath the table to pick them up. That was when I heard the sound of footsteps in the hallway, and suddenly the door to the lab burst open, and in walked Dr. Watson. To my great horror, he was also holding a birthday cake with lit candles on top, A cake which was most definitely designated for me. He glanced around in confusion for a moment, apparently trying to see where in the room I was located. Obviously someone had told him I was in here, which is why he looked so baffled when he could not find me. I stayed silent, vaguely hoping that he would not see me and would leave the room with his cake and his fire. I felt absolutely cowardly for being so unwilling to face him and mentally cursed myself for such mental weakness on my part. It was then that that blasted student put two and two together and realized who this new man holding the cake was looking for, and the student wordlessly pointed to me under the table while simultaneously trying not to drop the test tubes again. I made a desperate, irritating shooing motion at the student, who slunk awkwardly out of the room like an embarrassed dog and kicked the door shut behind him. Watson's face lit up as soon as he spotted me beneath the table. He approached, and to my mortification he began singing a birthday song. I expected him to set the cake down on the table, but as I was still under the table, he stood in front of the table at an angle by which I could still see the cake, and held the flaming cake as he persisted in singing to me. It's your birthday, hey, hey, hey! It's a happy occasion, hey, hey, hey! He finished his song. I still had not moved out from under the table and I realized I was still holding the forceps. Watson and I stared wordlessly at one another. Despite this awkward silence, Watson's face still looked unreasonably happy considering the circumstances, and if he had any observational skills, surely he must have noticed that my own face looked unreasonably horrified considering the circumstances. Do you want me to set the cake down on the floor? You should probably blow out the candles soon. I don't think the university likes the fact that I brought fire in here. The lady at the front desk didn't look too pleased when I came past her with this flaming cake. I think she might be sending someone to put out the fire if you don't do it first. A quiet part in the back of my mind told me that this would be a great time to refuse to come out from under the table. To let whomever the university was sending put out the cake fire. And then Dr. Watson would not want to room with me. Which inevitably would mean he would find a more suitable roommate who'd treat him with the respect that he deserved. I thought about doing that. I really did. It would have solved so many of the predicaments I found myself in. But I couldn't. As soon as I pictured how his face, still filled with enthusiasm and warmth, would fall, I knew I could not do that. I had to play along for now. I brushed away any feelings of sentimentality I may have had and replaced it by reframing it to myself that it would be very, very rude not to participate in this ritual, even if I did not want to. So, reluctantly, I crawled out from under the table and came to stand in front of Dr. Watson. The candles had burnt down quite far by now, and melted wax sat in pools on top of the frosting. Mustering up what I hoped was a kindly and enthusiastic smile, I did my part to participate and blew out the candles. Watson looked very excited and began looking for a place to set the spent candles on once he had removed them from the cake. Can I put them on this plate? Just as I was about to say yes, the door burst open again and Marlene from the front desk rushed in. Behind her was a girl carrying a bucket of water, obviously intended to put out a fire with. Watson turned to face me and smiled discreetly. Just in time. I smiled the smallest of acknowledging smiles back at him then turned to face this makeshift fire brigade. "'The fire has been put out. "'Thank you all very much for your astute and quick action, "'but the problem has been dealt with "'and your assistance is no longer required.' Marlene turned to face Dr. Watson. She glared and pointed a disappointed finger at him. "'You best not be bringing more fire "'into this building, young man.' "'I'm very sorry, ma'am. "'It won't happen again.' "'Good. It better not.' She directed the fire brigade girl to follow her, and they both left the room. For added measure, Marlene shook her finger at Dr. Watson once more, before she too slammed the door shut behind her. Watson turned to face me. I'm not actually sorry. It was worth it, and I would, unfortunately, do it again. I was genuinely surprised by this response, and the fact that he seemed much more pleased with himself for the commotion he'd caused and the rules he'd broken than I would have expected whether it was from surprise or exhaustion, I found myself at a loss for words, so I decided to change the subject. Weren't you wondering why I was under the table? I asked, hoping the strangeness of where he found me might deter him. Oh, I just assumed you were doing something important under there. You, You are correct. The balance of even the world itself may hinge upon the results of what experiments I was conducting under that very table. It seemed like maybe you dropped something. Oh, but that was part of the experiment. It, it was, it had, to, you wouldn't understand. Uh, I'm sure that's true. I've never looked into the more unusual branches of science as much as I probably should. I mean, I learned what was necessary to become a doctor, so I feel I have some foundation, but if it doesn't trouble you too much, someday I'm genuinely interested in learning more about the types of science you specialize in. That is, if you wouldn't mind teaching me a little about them? "'Yes, indeed. I hoped I sounded noncommittal enough. "'I was either trying to pass off his comment or outright reject him, "'which, again, I reminded myself would be rude to do. "'Dr. Watson then broke from this conversation, "'seeming completely undeterred and unintimidated, much to my annoyance. "'Dare I say that he seemed almost amused? "'And he went searching the lab for something to cut the cake with, "'and some sort of plates for the cake. "'Are these clean?' he asked as he held up two rather large Petri dishes. I wouldn't use those if I were you, I warned him. Dr. Watson looked at them appraisingly. Oh, it's nothing a little soap won't fix, I'm sure. Those have contained poison before. I fear soap may not be enough to combat some of the substances those dishes have held within them. Do you use poison often in your experiments? All the time. I am constantly surrounded by vast quantities of chemicals which may prove to be deadly. Even at home, I must designate part of my lodgings to create a miniature laboratory. I enjoy the presence of a good alkaloid or some dangerous metalloids. I use them in many of my experiments, and they are not to be trifled with unless one knows exactly what they are doing. This is one of the great risks of living with me. I just think you should be aware of that before we room together. I couldn't tell whether Watson looked slightly disconcerted by my comments or whether he was just trying to remember what a metalloid was. But he chuckled, and then I could not tell whether it was a dry, polite chuckle as he reluctantly humoured me, or whether he found my affinity for poisons intriguing or even thrilling. Well, as long as we clearly mark which dishes in the flat are for poison and which are for food usage, I think we should be able to make that work. Also, it's just occurred to me, if probably every utensil in this room has likely touched a dangerous substance at some point, how about I go and sneak off to the cafeteria? I'm sure I can convince one of the lads there to let me borrow some dishes, as long as I don't get caught by the front desk fire lady. (laughs) I'll go get those now. He rushed off, much to my dismay. As I watched him shut the door behind him, I briefly considered attempting to make an escape through the window. If I escaped the room in this manner, there was no chance of him seeing me escape, and he would return to an empty room. I then thought about pretending like I was having a medical issue and needed to go lie down, thus avoiding the cake ritual and the dreaded conversation about flats. But then it occurred to me that he was a medical doctor and would likely want to fawn over me, which would make things even worse. Despite knowing it was a bad idea, I quickly made my way over to the window anyways to see whether there was a good route from the second-story window down to the ground. There was a tree outside, and it was most likely close enough that I could kind of leap onto it and climb down unnoticed, as long as I didn't miss my jump. I was just calculating this when the door burst open again, and it was Dr. Watson holding two plates and some silverware. "Ooh, is there something interesting going on out there, Mr. Holmes?' I was looking at the tree. It's pretty chunky. "'Trees are pretty great. Do you know anything about botany?' I wonder how old it let is. is. Let's, "'Let's have some cake,' I said, trying to change the subject." I knew how old the tree was, but I also knew that getting into discussion about it would only prolong the inevitable. It was clear to me by now that there was no escape in the conversation, so I might as well try to get this all over as quickly as possible. Maybe then I'd be able to sleep. Watson began to cut the cake and served up two slices onto the plates he'd brought. Let me know what you think of it. All of the cakes I found in the shops were kind of expensive, so I baked this one myself. I've never made a cake before, so I hope it came out okay. I took a bite out of the cake. It was exceedingly dry. So dry that it took me longer than it should have to swallow it. Dr. Watson was looking at me eagerly, awaiting my reaction. This would be a great time to show him some of that blunt honesty everyone has always accused you of having, before you learned how to hide your bluntness better, the little voice in the back of my mind whispered. Is it good? Is it good? <laughs> it's, it's very good. It's the good. birthday cake I've had it's in years. It's the best birthday cake I've first had in years. It was a lie. The second statement was theoretically true, considering I had not had birthday cake at all in five or more years. Dr. Watson's face lit up and he looked a little flustered and also excited. Good. I'm really glad to hear that. The first one I made yesterday didn't come out very well, so I hope the second time would be the charm. I could not imagine a worse cake so I assumed attempt number one must have really been a sight to behold. Dr. Watson ate his own slice of cake, looking very pleased, so I had to assume he both did not find it dry and also did not share the same culinary aptitude as I had. I felt bad now about complimenting his cake, unsure as to whether it would make him feel more disappointed when I had to reject him or whether it would soften the blow. I finished my slice of cake with the assistance of a glass of water to wash down each dry bite. When it appeared Dr. Watson was almost done with his cake, I stood up straighter and steeled myself once more. Thank you for the birthday cake and the birthday song. I do believe we have business to discuss. Oh, we do, but before we do that, I have a little gift for you. It's not much, and I hadn't originally planned on getting you a gift, but I I saw this in a shop and thought of you, and I hope it's okay got you something. He pulled from his pocket a pair of plastic, wide-rimmed, round glasses. Attached to these were a fake plastic nose and a little plastic mustache. It's a disguise. I know you said you're a consulting detective and you, you probably already have something like this, but just in case you didn't, I thought maybe you might find something like this helpful. Uh, no, I, I... I don't have anything like this already. It's a wonderful, gifted, very thoughtful. I'm sure I'll get a lot of use out of these. Oh, well, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. You're welcome. He blushed, and then he seemed to relax a little and perked up. Now we can discuss business. I know last time we interacted, you said you'd have to look at your finances to see whether you could afford the Baker Street place, so I wanted to know whether you'd come to any conclusions about that yet. This. This was my cue. This was the question I'd pictured a thousand times over during each long, sleepless hour of the past few nights. The question by which I'd pictured myself responding to a thousand times in turn. I'd practiced my scripted response. I knew it like I knew how to find fingerprints at a crime scene. Despite all of this, I faltered. I, I could not say no to him. Not in this moment. Maybe it was the fact that he tried so hard to bake me a cake. Maybe it was even those ridiculous glasses. But in that moment, the bounds of right and wrong shifted and I knew that rejecting him now would be more a blow to the respect he deserved than agreeing to go along with his plan for the time being. I knew I was only going to hurt him in the end. But that did not stop me, almost involuntarily, from saying what I knew in my bones to be the right thing to say at the time. I have indeed looked at my finances, and it seems the Baker Street rooms would likely be doable. Oh, that makes me so happy to hear. (laughs) That's excellent news. I was aware that while I might be agreeing in the moment, I was only buying myself more time, procrastinating again in an endless chain of procrastinations as I became a progressively worse and more disappointing person. I would agree for now only to save Dr. Watson's feelings. It was then that I decided to implement a new course of action. If I made myself seem unpleasant enough for him, he would lose his desire to room with me and therefore might even decide on his own to break off this arrangement. Sure, he'd be disappointed, but ending the arrangement would be his choice and not due to my rejection, which would spare his feelings in its own way. To this end, I added, I would like to see the rooms before committing to them. There. That would buy me time. Of course. Would you be free to go see them tomorrow? I'm kind of unemployed at the moment, and I'm sure you're very busy. So really, my schedule's very flexible, and whenever you're available, I should be able to also make myself available. Tomorrow should be fine. I did not tell him that I, too, was unemployed for the moment. He would find that out soon enough. Splendid! Should we meet up here? Would 2pm work? I think I could manage that. I'll see you then. Watson looked awkward, like he wasn't sure when he was supposed to leave this party of his own creation. I pretended I was busy with work I had to get back to without directly saying so and he made small talk as he gathered up the plates and silverware to return to the cafeteria. When it came to the cake, he wanted me to keep the rest of it, but I managed to convince him because he put so much work into it that he should take half of it. So we divided it as such and wrapped our respective pieces in paper which I had coated with a thin layer of wax so things wouldn't stick to it. Then he wished me happy birthday again, and I thanked him for the party and the cake and the gift, and he left me alone in a lab which now seemed exceedingly quiet. I sat back down in my chair, even more exhausted than earlier. I put my face in my hands, wondering whether I should try to distract myself with more work or whether I should try to lie down somewhere with the hope that the unconsciousness of sleep might relieve me from some of my turmoil. Perhaps I didn't hate myself as much as I quite felt in that moment. Perhaps I was just very tired. I think I'll try to convince Billy Hughes that I have a headache. I'm hoping that, as they've agreed to keep my fleas and Mr. Sprinkles in their room during the day, perhaps they'll be amenable to the idea of lending me a blanket so that I may try to get some rest on their floor. It's too early to go to sleep in the library, so if Hughes is unwilling, perhaps I can find a quiet corner or a dark closet to curl up in. I feel sleep may be my best option in the moment, if sleep will come. Sherlock's Box of Curiosities is a podcast written and directed by Ashley Craft and produced by Exquisite Lore based on the Sherlock Holmes stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Sherlock Holmes was played by Ashley Craft. You can support this podcast by telling your friends about it, giving us a good rating on the podcast side of your choice, or supporting us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. You can find the links in our description. Thank you so much for listening.